3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. And welcome to The Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, here keeping an eye on these monopoly powers that keep seeping into our wallets and stealing our money without us really recognising how this economic system provides immense advantages to those who own the earth or the natural monopolies uh, that government grants license to. So today we've got an extended interview with Joseph Stiglitz, the World Bank economist who came in from the cold. It was a famous interview he was involved in back in 1999. Hopefully many of you have read his books such as Globalisation and Its Discontents and his more recent The Price of Inequality. So, uh, yeah, another huge week uh, in the world of Earth Sharing Australia. I can't wait to tell you about it on the other side of this interview. All right. Here it comes with the um, new economics. Welcome to the Institute for New Economic Thinking. We're here, here today with a very special friend. He is a professor of economics at Columbia and a Nobel laureate. He is the one and only Joseph Stiglitz. Good to have you here with us nice today, Joe. To well, the topic of inequality is uh, certainly a hot one this year, and I wanted to ask you something. I'm going to put the field of economics on the spot, if I could. What I wanted to ask you as an economist is, to what degree has bad economic theory contributed to the problem of inequality? I do think that economists share some of the blame for the increase in inequality, just like they share some of the blame, I think, for the great crisis of 2008. It was the economic models uh, at that time that said markets were self-adjusting, the system was stable. We could deregulate, rely on self-regulation, and the system would work well. We now know that was wrong. Uh, But Ideas, economic ideas, played a very big role in reinforcing some self-interest, moving us in that direction of self-regulation, deregulation. In the case of inequality, it's a little bit different. There uh, there were a couple of ideas in economics that I think uh, were particularly maybe say invidious, Mm. uh, unhelpful. Okay. Uh, One of them was that uh, a very deep idea called the second welfare theorem of welfare economics. (laughs) That's a mouthful. And it's a mouthful, but (laughs) the idea was a very simple one, uh, that the economist should focus on making the size of the economic pie as big as possible Mm. and then leave it to the political process to decide on how that pie is divided. So distribution, which was a question of how the pie got divided, was something for some other areas, but economics was interested in only one area, making the pie as big as possible. Okay. The second theorem, welfare economics, is said effectively that you could separate out those two ideas, separate distribution from efficiency, mm-hmm that you could achieve any distribution that you wanted through a market or market-friendly process, 
Hasn't worked out that way. Hasn't worked out that way. It got so bad that one Nobel Prize winner said, actually, the most dangerous subject for economists to talk about was distribution. He said it was actually dangerous. Why? Because he said, in worrying about how you divided the pie, you would lose attention on how to make the pie bigger. And the only way to enrich everybody was to make the pie bigger. And that was related to a third idea that was very, very popular at one time. No theory behind it, no evidence behind it, but that was a theory of trickle-down economics. And that was a very strongly held view. President Kennedy shared in that view. Rising tide lifts all boats. Make the economy bigger, everybody will benefit. So it was not only that a larger pie could benefit everybody, but a larger pie would benefit it's quite a everybody. Leap. And that big leap between those words could and would. Yes. And we now have the evidence. In the United States, our pie has been getting bigger and bigger almost every year except 2000. Uh, eight, nine, the time of the crisis. And the yachts are getting bigger and bigger. The yachts are getting <laughs> even bigger, but the little small boats are being crashed yeah. on the shores. The median income, people in the middle, have had their income go down year after year. Median income today is lower than it was 25 years ago. Median income of a full-time male worker is lower than it was 40 years ago. Wages at the bottom are lower than they were half a century ago. So in my mind, an economic system that doesn't deliver, doesn't raise standards of living for most Americans is a failed economic system. And in those terms, ours is a failed economic system. And this is where I do blame the economist, because mm -hmm. they thought, just get that pie bigger, just get the GDP going, and the system would work for most Americans. Not true. Right. Now we see that that's, that's not the case. Um, economists are now puzzling over this problem of inequality, which is a good thing. Uh, but there's some disagreement about what the causes might be. And you have an interesting idea that um, I know you have uh, talked about in a recent paper that land and real estate has really played a pivotal role in creating the situation we have. Can you explain a little bit about how that has worked, how it's happened? Well, the, the big di disagreement, this is more of a technical dispute, but an important one for policy purposes, among economists, all of whom agree that inequality is a big issue. But once you recognize that inequality is a big issue, you want to deep deeper what's causing it and what can we do about it. So there is one school of thought highlighted by the work of Piketty, for instance, that is capital in the 21st century. That with the rate of return on capital greater than the rate of growth of the economy, capital is going to grow faster. Those who have capital reinvesting and therefore their wealth is growing and growing and growing and at the expense of the rest. Something tells me you don't think that's the whole story. I, and, and there's a grain of truth in that, mm -hmm. but the point is that's not the big story. Okay. The, you look at savings. Uh, old theory, 19th century, uh, 
famous economist, Nassau Singer, who was actually a professor at Oxford, held the chair that I held at Oxford, it was the first chair in economics, uh, came up with this idea called abstinence theory. So his theory was that... Sounds like it belongs in another field, but... <laughs> so his theory was that the reason that the rich are rich is because they've sacrificed. Mm. So they've sacrificed by not consuming, that's abstinence, and that's what makes them wealthier and wealthier. So all that the rich were getting was a reward for their hard work, their, their not consuming, being prudent, frugal. So that's the kind of idea that you say, good thing, we ought to be rewarding them. Sure. The, you look at the details of what's happened in America. The frugality the, is hard to see. The frugality is hard to see. <laughs> you look at the savings rate of the economy, and you cannot account for the increase in the wealth that has occurred. So and where then, is it coming from? And what you see increasingly is that the wealth has come from especially capital gains on land. Mm. But when you look at it more deeply, it's not just capital gains on land. Land generates rents. Not from work, you just own the piece of land and you take in money. Right. But also the, those people who own oil or other natural resources, they're not getting the return to hard work, they're just getting the return to their ownership claim in these resources, which are God's gift to the world. But then you start looking even deeper and you realize that a lot of the rents are what we call exploitation rents, ranks associated with monopoly power, with discrimination, with taking advantage of your, say, power in the corporation to seize for the CEOs a larger and larger share of the corporate pie. There are all these kinds of ranks in the system that don't make the economy more efficient. They actually make the economy less efficient. But when you capitalize the ranks, you turn the ranks into an asset. So you have a monopoly. Monopoly generates what we call monopoly ranks. You can call it monopoly profits. Mm -hmm. But once I get that, I can buy and sell it. Microsoft gets a monopoly in the operating system, generates huge profits, but then those get bought and sold person who originally owns them becomes very wealthy. We know that's the wealthiest person in the world. So this is helping the rich get richer. Very, very much yes. so. In fact, if you look at the Forbes 100, a lot of the people at that top are not from saving and saving and saving. It's from monopoly ranks. But another example of the banks. Among the people at the top are the bankers and the owners of the, of the banks. Okay, now, if you deregulate... If you, if you change the rules of the game so that the bankers get bailed out by the public, they make more and more money, but who's really paying for it? Ordinary citizens through the taxes. Now, the value of those bailout rents, as we call them, are capitalized in the value of the shares of the banks especially before the crisis. But the other side, 
the fact that we, the taxpayers, are bearing the burden, that negative wealth is not showing up on our accounts. It should, but it's not. So a lot of the increase in wealth is not real wealth. Or to put it even in terms of land, here in France, the value of the Riviera has gone way up as the Russian oligarchs and others are all want these what we call positional goods. But the fact that the value of the land in Riviera is up doesn't mean that France is more productive. Right. It's the same amount of land. And what is really dangerous is that while all the money is going into these fixed assets, less is going into productive capital. And the result of that is the economy is actually potentially less productive. The most important source of rents, in a way, from a distribution point of view for what's going on in the growing inequality, is evidenced by the following. In the last 40 years, productivity of American workers, if you exclude you know, the top 1% who are not workers, who are people with bankers and CEOs and things They're like not that. job creators? Not, yeah. <laughs> if you look at the productivity of the real American workers, it's doubled. And the, the wages, wages, on the other have hand, stagnated. Right? So a gap has opened up. And you have to explain that. That, in my mind, is what I call ranks exploitation. It's yeah. taking advantage. It's the rules of the game. And this is really the point. It's not about capitalism in the 21st century. It's the way we've changed the rules of the game to disadvantage ordinary people. Well, that sort of leads me to my next question, which is what do we have to lose if we don't confront this problem? And one of the things you're pointing to that we would lose, I think, is the sense that hard work can get you far in life if you're an ordinary person. You might do better than your parents did before you. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll have a dignified life, a dignified retirement. You'll be able to send your kids to a good school. What happens to us and what's at stake if we don't confront this? One of the ways of thinking about this is back in what we now realize it, golden age of capitalism, which wasn't so golden because there was discrimination, there was inequality, even What then, years are we talking about? We're talking about 50 to 80, say, right. 45 to 80. And if you were a woman or a person of color, it probably looked even less exciting. <laughs> exactly. So in this period, though, we had a conception of a middle-class society. Mm. Uh, we had a conception, if you played by the rules, you worked hard, you were going to move up. You were going to be better than your parents. Your children were going to be better off than you. We were getting a sense of security. All that's gone. Now, the children are less well off than their parents. We're no longer a land of opportunity. In fact, when we look at the data, we now realize that a young American's prospects are more dependent on the income and education of his parents than in other advanced countries. We are the least consistent with the American dream. France is more of an American dream than America. Interesting. So this is really undermining our self-conception, others' conception of us. Our identity. Our identity, and I believe it's destroying our society. And then there's another element that I, I really emphasize, both in my book, The Price of Inequality, and my new book, uh, the Great Divide, that 
it's actually undermining our economy. It's one of the reasons that we grew really well in the period of shared prosperity between World War II and 1980. But the interesting thing is that in the period since 1980, while we've been growing apart, the only part of our society that's really growing is at the very top. On average, even on average, our growth has slowed down. So, so this is bad for everyone. This is bad even for everyone. Even the every, folks at the top. Even the folks at the top, I believe, would have done better mm. if they had sort of gone along with the social compact mm. that said, you know, we really ought to have shared prosperity. We ought to really be working to recreate that middle class America. That so there's a self destructive. Uh, kind of thing happening at the very top. Yes, and, and one way, obvious way of seeing that is that you can't have a dynamic economy if people are, aren't buying goods. Right. You can't have people buying goods if they have no income. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Yeah. With all the income going to the top, the people in the top save a lot of their income. We used to call that the paradox of thrift. And, but it's worse than that. They buy a lot of luxury goods that are made abroad. They buy a lot of uh, vacations, take them abroad. It doesn't recycle into jobs in America. A final question, Joe. Um, we hear a lot of discussion in the political arena, different plans to address inequality, maybe raise the minimum wage a little bit over here, maybe tax a little bit over there. Uh, but I think there's some concern that these plans don't really add up to what's really needed. Um, is it time to get radical? I, I think the answer is yes. I mean, I think we have to understand that inequality has reached the stage where mild tweaking of the system is not going to work. And when I say inequality, we're talking about inequality of outcomes, incomes, opportunity, health, everything. Uh, that it's now become systemic in nature, and you're not going to really attack something that is systemic as our inequality today, something as deep as our inequality today, and something that's built up over now almost a half century, unless you go deeper, unless you write a, you know, attack the underlying forces. And to me, the underlying forces is, have to do with, as I said, the rules of the game, the way our system uh, operates, what some people would call, political scientists would say, the power structures, uh, the weakening of unions, the weakening, you know, and the strengthening of the, allowing the CEOs to basically set their own salary. You know, and then they set their own salary and they say, Sorry, guys, we have to lower your wage because there's no money left. We don't have any money investment, so there's no job growth in the United States. That situation, which is short-sighted, self-destructive, but reflects a new short-sightedness that's been evident in America, is not good for our country in the long run. Well, thank you very much. You heard it here first. Time to get radical and take on the power structures with Joe Stiglitz. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate speaking with you and catching up with you. And there we have Joseph Stiglitz, the one and only.
interviewed by the Institute for New Economics. So uh, thanks very much, uh, dear YouTube, for that one. One day I will get him on the show. One day uh, we'll have the influence of uh, groups like the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Uh, Lynn Paramount, thanks very much for that one. So, uh, yeah, what a great line. Uh, distribution is a dangerous idea for economists and it's time to get radical on inequality. And you'll notice in that interview, Stiglitz, uh, who knows well and truly about these problems, he wrote the Henry George Theorem back in 1977, I think it was, on how all infrastructure is self-funding, how it should be self-funding. So uh, there's plenty of ways to fund this infrastructure deficit, but not when the wealthy have to pay more than 1% or 2% back to the community. And that's why we're stuck in gridlock. That's why this wealth gap keeps accelerating at a rate of knots. As uh, Mr. Stiglitz said there, that monopoly rents drive the Fortune 500. And uh, yeah, you, you note that he's talking about the problem and not really at the stage of uh, implementation or talking about the uh, policy uh, responses needed. And uh, yeah, I suppose that's something that our organization is finding out uh, yet again uh, over our 124-year history. Uh, we've tried to push for uh, land value taxes to replace taxes on our productive income by capturing the naturally rising value of the earth. And uh, right at this moment, the premiers are in a, uh, a, a leader's retreat with the Prime Minister Tony Abbott discussing what uh, they will do with the gun placed at their heads by the federal government uh, with the looming $80 billion cut from state government grants. And uh, the challenge has been whether to go for the, uh, the policy that will reduce reduce inequality that will uh, channel the property bubble uh, towards income tax cuts and thus real wage gains whilst reducing debts for the wider population or whether they will push towards um, a measure that will increase inequality, penalising the poor and uh, basically giving a free pass to more land speculation. And unfortunately, New South Wales Premier Mike Baird has uh, this week gazumped the process by advocating a 15% increase in the GST and limiting that increase to uh, spends on health. So goodness knows what that's going to do for our schooling system. And uh, private schools will be licking their lips with uh, the opportunities uh, prevalent there. So, uh, yeah, wherever you look, there are massive uh, cracks appearing in the system. I used to joke about carjacking happening in Australia. It's now occurring uh, more often. I just am uh, staggered that so many communities around the world put up with the, the sort of violence that uh, the sort of drug um, abuse that occurs when uh, our life answering phones in a telemarketing centre is the best that one can hope for as they pay off their $40,000 uh, education debts. I mean, that's sort of byproduct of a ineffective tax system and that's why it's it's uh, probably not surprising to see this growth in uh, what our friends at uh, Macro Business called the Specu Festa, the speculative first-time investor. 
And uh, yeah, apparently, according to Mortgage Choices' latest investor survey, 36.6% of investors were first-time buyers, significantly up on the 21.1% recorded this time last year. Uh, self-managed super funds, something I've been warning about since 2010. There was a, a double-digit uh, increase in their uh, property uh, speculation findings of recent. So uh, they're uh, uh, booming in influence. So it's not just foreign investors that are to blame. Um, but then on the other side to it, we have the reality that uh, whilst our wages are stagnating, as Stiglitz was talking about, uh, uh, Australian rents grew by just 0.4% uh, over the June quarter of 2014. That's uh, uh, the slowest since uh, March 2005 and was only up by 1.9% over the year. Comparing that to uh, the increase in national house prices at somewhere around about 6 to 8%, um, 10.5% I think in Sydney, uh, uh, wages aren't keeping up, rents aren't keeping up. This is a strong sign that uh, the economic fundamentals are not keeping pace with this speculative appetite and uh, the government is slowly but surely applying more pressure on uh, the, the role of investment and the Basel III uh, uh, banking standards are filtering through with APRA this week instructing the four main banks and the Macquarie Group to hold billions of dollars in extra capital to cover mortgage loans. And that may lead to uh, higher borrowing costs for investors. And the example given here in the uh, financial review is that an investor who wants to buy a $1 million property could have to prove they will generate an additional 22500 in cash a year under new standards. Uh, for a $500,000 property, they'd need 12300 in additional cash a year. And the question is, will these investors be able to jack up rents and uh, that, to cover these costs and with the supply of apartments coming online here in Melbourne, um, it sounds like there's some slow moves in Sydney as well, uh, that supply pressure will put additional uh, countervailing pressures on uh, the desire to push up rent. So it's very interesting what's happening and uh, yeah, we're... Uh, Frustrated that this is occurring uh, at the, the the state level, that uh, in South Australia, where uh, the the Premier Jay Weatherall talked about uh, replacing stamp duties with a land tax, which is uh, the first step to really getting our agenda up and running. Uh, well, unfortunately, the public support there was not high enough. Uh, the record low economic literacy rates out there were devastating. And, uh, yeah, th there wasn't a, a comprehension of some of the issues Joseph Stiglitz was talking about there. So uh, we need more help. Uh, our DGR uh, entity, the Prosper Australia Research Institute, is up and running. And please donate there if you can. We've got some one-fifteenth of the staffing resources of the Australia Institute, let alone the Grattan Institute or the Real Estate Institute of Australia. So, uh, yeah, I'm off to America for the next three weeks to uh, present the Total Resource Rents of Australia update. You heard Stiglitz talking about the need to quantify all the rents. Well, Australia is one of the few uh, nations where we can do that. It's um, a monster job. I wish I had more help doing it, but somehow I'm going to put it together. And I'll just leave you with this story out of Baltimore where they've got 16,000 vacant houses. And there's a group there uh, called Housing Our Neighbours 
saying, why can't we live in these vacant properties? And of course, Baltimore is where uh, uh, Freddie Gray was controversially killed recently, uh, uh, the African-American under more police brutality. So uh, uh, he was uh, raised in one of these impoverished, uh, largely vacant neighbourhoods. And report after report is now zeroing in on the story of these vacant buildings. Well, uh, they are the canary in the coal mine that needs to be exposed as... uh